we get our Bibles out? We're going to continue in our study on the book of Genesis today, and we're going to be together in Genesis 29, all right? Genesis chapter 29. Well, growing up, I spent a lot of time on a farm because my grandparents on my dad's side were farmers, and so I can always remember being at their house when it was time for planting. We would all be out in the field together as a family, plowing and sowing seed, And then we would always be back at their house again when it was time for picking, when we'd be out picking and jarring and snapping beans. And right, if you grew up on a farm, you get it. And so I can remember at an early age learning a very, very basic principle about farming. And the principle was this, that you reap what you sow, right? You reap what you sow, meaning if you reap a few seeds, you're probably going to, excuse me, if you sow a few seeds, you're probably going to reap a few crops, If you sow a lot more seeds, you're probably going to reap more crops. If you sow in good soil, good crops, bad soil, bad crops. Uh, If you sow a particular type of seed, so for example, a tomato seed, you should expect to reap. Good job. Um, If you guys, if if, if you sow squash seeds, you're going to reap. This is not rocket science, right? This is common sense. And common sense tells us that you reap what you sow. And according to the scriptures, listen to this, this common sense principle not only applies to farming, it applies to life. And in fact, this principle has a name. It's known as talionic justice. Anybody ever heard of this talionic justice? Maybe like half, like like a half a person. Somebody, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe. I have. Okay, talionic justice, I'll unpack it. Uh, the word talion comes from a Latin word talio, which also appears in our English word retaliate. And the idea of talionic justice is that you suffer in the same way that you sin. I bet you've heard of this, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you hear that? That's talionic justice. And the first example we see of it in the scriptures is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, in that chapter, the first two people God creates, they defy God. They sin against him. They do the one thing that God asked them not to do, which was eat. Don't eat from this one particular tree. You can eat from any tree you want in this whole garden. Just don't eat from this one tree. And what do they do? They, they eat. And so part of Adam's punishment is this. Now it's going to be hard for you to eat. Okay, because you ate of that one tree, now you're going to have to work and sweat and toil, and life's going to be really stressful all to eat. And so in essence, Adam reaped what he sowed. In our passage for today, we see a very, very similar thing happening. Okay, over the last few weeks, we've been studying the life of this man named Jacob. Jacob was the son of a guy named Isaac, the grandson of a man named Abraham, And he was the possessor of all the promises God gave to his granddad. Promises to bless him, to make his name great, to make him the father of a great nation, to bless all the families of the earth through him. Yet, instead of sitting back and waiting patiently on those promises to come, Jacob, who was somewhat of a punk, right? He lied, schemed, deceived, and manipulated all to obtain what he wanted. Well, in Genesis 29 his scheming and deceiving catches up with him. Actually comes back to bite him and he gets a taste of his own medicine. And what we learn from our story today is this, that sinful sowing reaps divine discipline. If you're taking notes, just write that down. This is the big idea of the message and we'll spend all of our time unpacking it. We learn from the story that sinful sowing 
reaps divine discipline. So in other words, when we as people do what Jacob did, and we sow our time, our energy, our efforts, our passions, our resources, our intellect into sinful endeavors, and then we suffer as a result, please hear me, that's not accidental, that's not coincidental, that's not karma coming back to bite you. No, my friends, that is God himself disciplining you. In other words, you are reaping from God what you sowed. And if that's confusing or concerning to you in any way, don't worry. It should all make sense as we work our way through the story. All right, so let's dive in. Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the, fi- in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there... The shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and they would water the sheep. And then they'd put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Well, Jacob says to the shepherds, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we can't do that until all the flocks are gathered and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well and then we water the sheep. Well, while Jacob was still speaking with those shepherds, the Bible says Rachel came with her father's sheep because she was a shepherdess. And as soon as Jacob saw her and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near, look at this, and rolled the stone from the well's mouth all by himself And he watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told her that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her dad. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So we'll stop there and talk. All right. Uh, What we see in these first 14 verses is Jacob entering the land of his ancestors, basically the land of his granddad Abraham, where he grew up and where he came from. Okay, we learned over the last couple of weeks that uh, Jacob left the land of promise to head to this land for two big reasons. Number one, his brother's trying to kill him. Remember this if you were here a couple weeks ago? Uh, He posed as his older brother because older sons were the sons in this culture who received the blessings and the birthright. And Isaac, his dad, was planning to give the blessing and the birthright to Esau, but Jacob wanted it for himself. And and so he poses as older brother, deceives his dad, obtains the birthright, and Esau is livid, like losing his mind. And so his plan was, after my dad dies, I'm murdering my brother. And so Rebecca, the mom, says, hey, bro, you might want to get out of here. Like, seriously, your brother's going to kill you. So he takes off. The second reason he leaves and comes to this land was to find a wife. Okay, we started talking about this last week. Uh, Isaac calls Jacob in and he says, hey, buddy, don't do what your older brother did. Don't marry these Canaanite women that are living amongst us. They're crazy. They're godless. You don't need to spend your life with one of them. So leave and go back to our homeland and go to your uncle Laban's house and choose one of his daughters for your wife. And so this is what Jacob's doing. He's on the run, just coming into the land. And the first thing he notices is a well. Well, 
Now, what's interesting is that this is very similar to what we saw a few chapters back when we were in Genesis 24. Okay, in that chapter, Abraham sent one of his servants back to his homeland to find a wife for his son Isaac. And when that servant first came into the land, he noticed a a well. And this was God, as we learned, guiding him in providence. Okay, providence in theology means that God didn't simply create the world and then take a step back, okay? Uh, God's not sitting on the sidelines with Coke and popcorn in hand just watching history unfold. No, providence suggests that the God who created the universe is actively participating in it. That he is arranging the natural events of human life to pull off his plans and purposes in our world. And so this is what he did for Isaac, right, in Genesis 24. He guided the servant of Abraham to the right place at the right time to meet the right woman who would later become Isaac's wife. What's curious is that in Genesis 29, it almost looks like the same story, doesn't it? Which is intentional. Okay, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he's using a literary device called parallelism. He's basically telling this story in the same way as the other story to show us that God is up to very much the same thing, okay? In Providence, he's guiding Jacob to the right place at the right time to meet the right woman who would later become his wife. And so he arrives at this well, not by mistake, and he notices some things. A few flocks of sheep are there. Uh, He notices that there's a big heavy stone laying over the mouth of the well. Uh, That stone was there to prevent pollution, to prevent theft. And what we see from the text is that this stone was apparently so heavy that the shepherds actually moved it together. One guy didn't do this by himself. The third thing that he notices is lazy shepherds just sitting around doing nothing. They're just hanging not working, sitting on, you know, their backsides, just taking a break. And so uh, these shepherds obviously were not too keen on the fact that Jacob showed up when he did, which is seen in the fact that he not only greeted them, but they gave really short answers to all of his questions. Did you notice that? It's like talking to a kid, right? Hey, fellas, where are you from? Haran. (laughs) Great, that's where I'm headed. Do you know Laban? Yeah, we know him. Well, do you know if things are well? Like, if things going okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's well with him. And look, there's his daughter. She's on the way. As if to say, dude, leave us alone and go talk to her. And I love our boy Jacob, okay? I, I told you, he's uh, weeks ago. He's very reflective. He's very thoughtful. He, he's kind of one of those guys who spends a lot of mental energy on things. And so he gives a little passive, aggressive parting shot on his way out. He says to these shepherds, hey, fellas, there's a lot of daylight left. Shouldn't you be up doing some work? Uh, It's not time for the sheep to be gathered just yet. Why don't you stand up, water the sheep, and get them out to pasture? And as this dude's busy talking trash to the shepherds, excuse me, this is when Rachel walks up. And I love verse 10, because this is just like a dude, okay? Verse 10, Rachel comes up, Jacob sees her, and he starts flexing immediately, okay? He goes over to this heavy stone covering the well, and the brother moves it all by himself. Just like a man trying to impress a woman, right? Like, I know I shouldn't be doing this by myself, but I'm going to because she needs to know I can. Just like these dudes watching me need to know I can. And so he moves the heavy stone, proceeds to water her sheep. And I can just picture him as he's doing so, looking at the shepherds. Can't you picture this? Like, hey, fellas, I know you were here first, but she's going first. I know you've been waiting in line, but you're still going to wait because I'm taking care of her. And so he takes care of her, and then he does something that seems really strange on the surface. 
he kisses her and weeps aloud. Now, I would imagine there are some of you women in the room who are already saying, Rachel, don't do it. (laughs) Dated a guy like that. He was a psycho. Like, run. Save yourself. (laughs) But look, it's not what you think. It's not what you think, okay? Uh, This kiss was not sexual. It was friendly. Uh, These emotions at this point were not romantic. They were godly. This is Jacob. Listen, this is Jacob starting to realize, oh my gosh, despite all of my scheming and my lying and my manipulation, God is going to do what he's promised to do. He has guided me here in Providence to the right place at the right time to meet the right woman. He's about to bless me with a wife. And through that wife, he's going to bless me with descendants. And then he's going to guide those descendants back to the land from which I came. And he's going to give them that land just like he promised he would. It's pretty fascinating, right? And so he's just recognizing God brought me here to bless me. But what he's not recognizing is that God also brought him here to discipline him. And this is what we see next in the story. Okay, Rachel runs back to her dad's house and she says, Dad, hey, uh, there's a guy out here who claims to be my cousin, your nephew. Come out here and meet him. And so Laban runs out, talks to Jacob, and invites him to stay. And then he says this in verse 15. Check it out. Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And I love this next line. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Sounds like a Hallmark card, doesn't it? Like... It's just so sweet. <laughs> and, then, and then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. And so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Some commentary here that will be important to the story in the coming weeks. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and he completed her week. And then Jacob gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And again, some more commentary important to the future of the story. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So here's what happens in these verses. Laban, he says to Jacob, all right, dude, we're family, and if you're going to stay here and you're going to serve me and work for me, it's only right that I pay you something. And so what kind of wages do you want? And it's at this point of the story that we learn Laban had two daughters, okay? He had an older daughter. Her name was Leah, and apparently she wasn't all that attractive, okay? The Bible says she has weak eyes. Uh, Many Bible scholars take that to mean that she lacked the fire in her eyes that was desirable in this Middle Eastern culture at this time. 
Second daughter was Rachel. She was the younger daughter, and as the Scriptures tell us, she was beautiful in both form and appearance. And so Jacob says, that's what I want. I want the pretty girl. I want the young daughter. I want Rachel to be my wife, and if you'll give her to me as my wife, I'll stay here and serve you for the next seven years. That, by the way, was an extremely generous offer. Okay, during this time, shepherds only made about 10 shekels a year. And the going price, the dowry price for a bride was 30 to 40 shekels. And so in reality, Jacob should have only stayed and served three to four years, but he goes over and above that all to get the girl that he wanted. And Laban seems to agree to this offer until it was time to follow through. Okay, seven years pass in our text. Seven years go by. And Jacob comes back to his uncle and he goes, all right, dude, it's time. Give me my wife. Put in my time. I've been faithful. I've served you like I said I would. Uh, So now it's time for you to do what you said you would do. And so Laban organizes this huge wedding feast. But instead of giving Rachel to Jacob, he gives Leah to Jacob. And how he pulled the whole thing off, we simply don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, we can speculate, right? It was evening, so it was probably dark. In this culture, it was customary for brides to be veiled from head to toe. And so Jacob may have never seen her face before the ceremony took place. At a wedding feast like this, wine was typically flowing. And so Laban could have worked really hard to get Jacob drunk. How he restrained Rachel, no idea. How he convinced Leah to be uh, in agreement with his plan, we don't know. All we know is that at the end of the night, Jacob married Leah and he consummated the marriage with her. And he has no idea what he's done until the next morning. I mean, can't you picture this? Sun's coming up. This dude's just waking up. He's super excited. Just spent his first night with his bride. And he rolls over and there's weak-eyed Leah. (laughs) I can only imagine the words that came out of his mouth at this moment, right? And He's jumping up in a hurry, putting some clothes on, and he runs out and finds his uncle. And here's his question. Why have you deceived me? Oh, the irony. (laughs) Uncle, why have you done to me what I just did to my dad and my brother? And Laban says back to him, sorry, buddy, that's just how it works here. In our country, we don't give the younger daughter before the older daughter in marriage. And so if you'd like to stay and complete your honeymoon week with Leah, at the end of the week, I'll give you Rachel also to be your second wife, but you have to agree to stay and serve me another seven years. And just like that, Jacob the deceiver reaps what he sowed. Do you see it? Do you see Jacob suffering in the same way that he sinned? What you also need to see is this. That wasn't an accident. That was not coincidence. No, this was the discipline of God in Jacob's life. Again, he not only led Jacob to Rachel for blessing, he led Jacob to Laban for discipline. Why? Why? Because sinful sowing reaps divine discipline. And what we learn specifically about discipline from this part of the story is this, that sometimes God disciplines us using people who are like us. Sometimes God disciplines us using people who are like us. I feel like I experience this truth in my house almost every single day. And I've told you guys, I got a seven-year-old daughter in my house who is just like her daddy. 
And God will oftentimes use that little girl to confront me with me. Like she'll have an angry outburst and God will just nudge me and go, hey bro, you do that. She'll get frustrated because she wants to do something that she can't do. And God, again, will just hit me on the side and go, hey, that looks familiar. Uh, This little girl cannot take no for an answer, will argue with you about anything. And when she's doing that, at times God will just kind of kick me and go, I know somebody else who loves to argue about everything. So God uses her, again, to confront me with me and to show me where I'm still broken and in need of his grace and help. This is what God's doing for Jacob through Laban, and it's what God does in your life through other people at times. You see, you've got to be aware of this. There are times when God in his providence will either guide you to people or guide people to you as a means of disciplining you. And it's really easy to know when it's happening because those people in your life are the people who drive you crazy. They frustrate you to no end, make you so mad because in many ways they're just like you. And what God is doing through that person is he's basically holding up a mirror and he's saying to you, do you see yourself? That character trait in them that frustrates you to no end, um, you realize that you do that same thing to other people, right? Like that's you. You're staring at you and God is confronting you with you through them to show you where you need his grace and his strength. And so here's my encouragement to you. Next time you find yourself dealing with a Laban, stop complaining and start questioning. Don't be that person that runs to God and goes, God, why? No, be the person that goes to God and and asks, God, why? Why is this person in my life right now? And what are you trying to show me about me through them? Sometimes God disciplines us using people who are like us. Now, with the rest of our time that we have together, what I want to do is give you two additional principles concerning the discipline of God, okay? These are principles that I believe are going to be helpful for every person in the room, but especially for those of us who either, number one, grew up without discipline. You know, you were that kid or that teenager just running around making everybody crazy and your parent or your guardian just did not care. Or number two, you were the kid or the teenager that experienced really unhealthy discipline. You were abused. You were beaten down. You were beaten up. You were belittled. You were disciplined for silly reasons that you should have never been disciplined for. And here's what I would say to you. If you're either one of those people, the discipline of God is different from what you might think. Like, I get it. I know when you hear, if that's you, if you hear that word discipline in your mind, that word immediately has negative connotations. The discipline of God is overwhelmingly positive. There is nothing negative about it. And again, I just want you to see its purpose is different than what you might have in your mind right now. And so let me give you these principles to explain, okay? Number one, number one, God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. We find this in Hebrews 12.6, amongst other places in the scriptures. But Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. On a really practical level, here's what that means. God disciplined Jacob because he loved Jacob. And we know he loved Jacob, right? Because not only did God pick him out of the two sons to be the blessed son, but Malachi 1.3, Romans 9.13 tells us plainly, God loved Jacob and he disciplined, Adam, disciplined him out of his love for him. And what you need to know is that the reason God disciplines you if you're a son or daughter in his family is because God loves you. 
And to make sense of that, what I want to do is just touch on a couple of truths that we've covered in the last couple of weeks, okay? So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the Word of God brings order. Do you remember this if you were here? That the Word of God brings order. It doesn't bring misery or frustration or despair. It brings order. Meaning that when you and I submit to what God has said, when we follow His Word, live in obedience to Him, our lives come into alignment with His design for how life is meant to work, and we start to experience a joy and freedom that is impossible to know apart from obedience to the Word of God. On the other hand, when you defy the Word of God and you sow sinfully, you create disorder. Uh, Like a car, your life comes out of alignment and you start to pull to the left or to the right and all of a sudden your life is not functioning in the way it was meant to function. Last week, we talked about how sin isolates. Do you remember this if you were here? Sin isolates. We have a very real enemy who comes uh, on a regular basis to tempt us. And the Bible compares temptation to a trap. It actually uses fishing language to do so, right? That we have an enemy who will come and throw baits in front of us And he'll use whatever bait he knows is going to work for us based on our particular struggles in life. And he'll try to convince us, hey, if you take the bait, that will equal satisfaction. And so oftentimes what we do is we take the bait, but instead of experience satisfaction, we experience feelings of guilt and shame. And we've all been there, haven't we? And as a result of the guilt and shame we are now wrestling with, instead of running to God and to people, we run from them. We isolate ourselves. And in doing so, it's almost like we put a target on our back for the enemy. This, uh, this enemy who Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8 is a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. It's almost like we're saying to him by isolating ourselves, Hey, uh, come take me out. I'm ready to be destroyed. And the reason I bring that up is to show you this. When you sow sinfully, you place yourself in incredible danger incredible danger and God's goal in disciplining you listen is to rescue you out of that danger this is a beautiful truth I mean think about it like this if my four-year-old daughter Selah decided that she wanted to go play in the middle of highway 41 and I as her father just sat on the side of the road and watched it happen none of you would accuse me of loving my daughter would you no, you'd be screaming at me, dude, like what kind of dad just sits there and watches their kid play in the middle of a road like that? No, you'd start praising me for the good dad that I am once I ran out into the middle of the road and I snatched her out of danger and disciplined her so that she didn't do that again, right? And listen, this is the discipline of God. God is on a rescue mission when He disciplines us. He's that good loving Father rushing into the middle of traffic to snatch us out of danger and then He disciplines us so that we don't go back to danger again. This is who He is and what He does. And so hear me, hear me. Contrary to what some of you might think and believe, God does not discipline us to make us pay for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel, by the way, my friends. 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid for your sin, which means there is nothing left for you to pay. Come on, man. I feel like we need to sing that old hymn we grew up singing. Jesus paid it all, right? This is the truth of what we believe, that 2,000 years ago at the cross, the God of the universe took all of your sin off of you, past, present, future, put it on his son Jesus, and punished him in your place. And so look, Despite what you do, if you're a son or daughter in the family of God, there's nothing left for you to pay. 
It has all been paid. The work has been completed. And so again, God is not the father rushing into traffic to beat his kids up to teach them a lesson. No, God is the God who disciplines to restore. To restore his sons and daughters back to himself. To restore his sons and daughters back to safety. Why? Because he loves us. God disciplines those he loves. That's principle number one. Principle number two is this. That God disciplines for our good. That God disciplines for our good. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11 say this. For they, and the writer here is talking about earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us, here it is, for our good that we may share his holiness. Okay, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So in these verses, the writer of Hebrews points out the obvious, that discipline hurts. It hurts. Any of you like me growing up, you had parents that said to you at times when they disciplined you, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And as a kid, you're always thinking, shut up. No, it's not. Like, this hurts. We all know it hurts, right? And the discipline of God hurts because oftentimes it involves pain, loss, hardship, suffering, brokenness, frustrating people. So again, the writer of Hebrews is going, yeah, it's painful. But then he points out the not so obvious, that despite the pain of discipline, God's discipline is for our good. Because through it, listen, through it, God is trying to grow us in three areas, holiness, peace, and righteousness. And what we need to take from that is really simple. God's goal in discipline is not to modify our behavior, but to transform our character. His greatest goal in discipline, listen, is not to get us to act in a certain way. He's trying to get us to become certain types of people. People whose characters, people whose lives look like the life and character of his son, Jesus Christ. Again, this is what he was doing for Jacob. He had a big job for this guy. We'll see this in the coming weeks, but Jacob went on to father 12 sons by four different women. (laughs) We'll get there, don't worry. But 12 sons, and those 12 sons fathered 12 tribes who would become the nation of Israel. But listen, that's not what was most important to God in this moment. What was most important to God in this moment of discipline was making Jacob into the man he wanted him to be. It wasn't about who, who, or what Jacob was doing. It was about who Jacob was becoming. And parents in the room, you should get this more than anybody, right? I mean, when you discipline your kids, think about this with me. You not only discipline them to change their behavior in a moment, but don't you discipline them because you're fully aware that they're going to grow up and be adults one day? Parents, don't ever forget that. You're not raising kids. You're raising adults. Please, for the love, discipline your kids. Because if you don't, listen to me, if you don't, they're going to grow up and they're going to be jerks. Okay? It's the reality. And this is why God disciplines us to prevent us from becoming spiritual jerks. And to turn us into people who look like his son, Jesus Christ. And so here's my final encouragement, and then we'll pray. When you sin, uh, or excuse me, when you sow sinfully and you reap the divine discipline of God as a result, here's my encouragement. Don't grow weary of it. Don't despise it. Don't try to figure out how quickly you can get out of it. 
And don't be that son or daughter in the family of God who fights against it. No, just let it serve its purpose. Receive it, welcome it, knowing that God is up to something in your life and the something that he is up to, it is for your good. Can we just pray together and ask God for his help in that? Just all over the room. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. Father, first and foremost, we want to thank you for Jesus. And we want to thank you that he paid it all at the cross. That all of our sin has been paid for, atoned for, that it is forgiven if we truly know him as Savior and Lord. And we thank you that you did that for us, not because of us, but in spite of us. We thank you for your incredible grace and incredible mercy. And we thank you for being a God who loves us so deeply that when we are going off the rails, you come after us and you discipline us and you bring us back to you. And God, my prayer for all of us today is that we would have an awareness of your discipline in our lives and that we would open our lives to it. God, even when it's painful, that we would receive it because we know that you love us and we know that you have our good in mind. And so God, I want to pray especially for those in the room right now who are experiencing discipline in this present moment. They have sowed sinfully in some way and life is hard and life is painful. God, help them to see that you're after them, that they are in a place of danger and that you are on a rescue mission. And I pray, Father, that they would just humbly submit their lives to you. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, um, I want to talk for just a moment to those of you who came in today who've never put your faith in this Jesus that we've talked about, the one who paid the price for your sin, the one who gave up his life so that you could know life. I would imagine that you know who you are because you're that person who up until this point, you've just kind of lived life how you wanted to live life. You've been your own God. You've been making all your own decisions. And maybe, just maybe, you finally come to this point in life where you're realizing, dude, I'm broken and life stinks and nothing that I'm trying is working. I I can't gain joy or satisfaction or, or peace or life change through any of these pursuits I just want to say to you, I I believe, here's what I believe. I believe that the reason you're stuck in this place right now is because God is trying to wake you up to who he is. He's after you. He's allowing you to experience some pain right now so that you can see the beauty of who he is and the beauty of what he's done for you through his son, Jesus. Listen, maybe you're that person that as I say that, something inside of you is just telling you that's true. That's true. I need to believe that. Listen, that's something that's telling you that that's God himself affirming for you that he brought you here today to surrender your life to him. And if you need to do that, if you just need to let go of your life and put your faith in Jesus and follow him and 
ask the God of the universe to change you, to do things in your life only he can do. I want to help you do it right now. And so again, with heads bowed and eyes closed, just wherever you're seated, why don't you just say something like this in faith? Just say to God, God, I know that I'm a sinful person. And I recognize that I have been living my life apart from you until today. But God, I'm ready for that to change. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And that he rose from the dead to give me new and eternal life. And so God, I'm laying my life before you today. Would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? Would you take hold of my life and make me into the person you've created me to be. I say yes to Jesus.